1: to download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com/catholicclassics or text Confessions to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily
0: notifications. This is day 28. Today we will be reading Book 8, chapters one through three, in the Ascension edition of the book.
1: If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Okay, before we get into the reading,
0: a quick look at what we're covering today. First, his conversion is coming. It is coming soon. So get pumped, stay pumped, but also know that it's not happening in this episode. So, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Uh, but then the other thing is in today's reading or in the passage that we'll read for today's episode, you'll notice some more violent imagery. So St. Augustine makes reference to the God who breaks his bones. We've also heard previously about his friend whom God killed lest he die apart from him. And when you hear things like that, sometimes you think, yikes, creepy the Catholic faith, kind of weird and strange, maybe maladjusted. But when he uses this type of imagery, I think what he's describing is that God is proffering an invitation, uh, whether for his friend, for himself to enter into life, to discover God himself at the heart of reality, and then to place all other things beside, in their proper setting, in their proper context. Because when God makes this invitation to life, he exposes us often enough you know, to death or to difficulties. But it's infinitely better than you know, staying at home and trembling in fear or cowering in fear lest we cross the threshold of our homes and then come to discover that there are various threats and menaces here and abroad. Uh, because if we stay home, we just, we don't ever grow, right? We don't ever experience life as the Lord intends it for us. So I would say, yeah, take some of the violent imagery with that in mind. Okay. Let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy spirit, that I love, but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 1. O my God, in a spirit of thanksgiving, let me recall and confess to you the mercies that you showed me. Let my bones be filled with your love, and let them say, Who is like unto you, O Lord? See Psalm 35.10. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Psalm 116.16-17. And I will now declare how you broke them, and all who worship you will say, upon hearing this, Blessed be the Lord in heaven and upon earth, great and wonderful is his name. See Psalm 101.3 and 111.9 Your words held fast within my heart, and I was hedged in upon all sides by you. See Job 110. I was now certain of your eternal life, though I saw it in a mirror dimly. See 1 Corinthians 13.12 Nonetheless, I no longer doubted that there was an incorruptible substance, the source of every other substance. nor did I any longer desire to be more certain of you, but rather to be steadfast in you. But everything was wavering in my temporal life, and my heart had to be cleansed of the old leaven. See First Corinthians 5:7. The way, the Saviour himself, was quite pleasing to me, but to this point I drew back from traveling upon his straight path. And you put into my mind an idea that seemed good to me, namely, to go to Simplician, who seemed to be one of your good servants, and your grace shone forth in him. I also heard that from his very youth he had lived a life most devoted to you. He had now grown in years, and having spent such a long time traveling upon your ways with great zeal, he seemed to have learned much through his experiences. And indeed he had." I wished to set before him all my anxieties and ask him to draw from the storehouse of his wisdom so that he might tell me the best way for someone like me to walk in your paths. For I saw that the church is full of men who went this way or that in their walks of life. However, I was displeased that I led a life in the world. Indeed, now that my desires no longer inflamed within me hopes for honor and wealth as they once had, this onerous bondage was a great burden." For those things no longer delighted me in comparison with your sweetness and the beauty of your house. See Psalm 26, 8. However, I was still enthralled by love of women, nor did the apostle forbid me to marry, though he advised me that there is something better, especially wishing that all men would be as he was. See 1 Corinthians 7, 8. However, in my weakness, I chose the more indulgent path. Therefore, for the sake of this alone, I was tossed up and down in everything else, faint and wasted away with exhausting cares. For in other matters, I was forced against my will to conform myself to the married life to which I gave myself over as a slave. I had heard from the mouth of the truth that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. See Matthew 19, 12. But, he continued, quote, he who is able to receive this, let him receive it, end quote. For surely all men who are ignorant of God are vain and are not able to find out him who is good by considering the good things which are seen. See Wisdom 13, 1. But I no longer lived in such vanity. I had surmounted it, and by the common witness of your creatures I had discovered you, our Creator, and your Word, God with you, and together with you the one God, through whom you had created all things. But there is yet another kind of ungodly men, who, although they knew God, did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. See Romans 1.21. Into this too had I fallen, but your right hand upheld me. See Psalm 18.38, drawing me from there and placing me somewhere that I might recover. For you have said to man, quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, end quote, Proverbs nine, ten, and quote, be not wise in your own eyes, end quote Proverbs three, seven. For they who claimed to be wise became fools, see Romans one twenty two. But I had now found the pearl of great price, for which I should have sold everything that I had, see Matthew thirteen, forty six. Yet I hesitated. two. Thus, I went to Simplician, the father in grace of Bishop Ambrose, a man whom Ambrose truly loved as a father. I spoke to him about all the mazes through which I had wandered. However, when I mentioned to him that I had read certain books by the Platonists, translated into Latin by Maurius Victorinus, a former professor of rhetoric in Rome who had died as a Christian, he was overjoyed that I had not fallen upon the writings of other philosophers which are filled with fallacies and deceits according to the human traditions. See Colossians 2.8 whereas the Platonists in many ways led to belief in God and his word. Then, as an exhortation to the humility of Christ, which is hidden from the wise and revealed to little ones, see Matthew 11:25, 25, he spoke of Victorinus himself, whom he had most intimately known while in Rome. I will not conceal what he said concerning him, for it contains great praise of your grace to confess to you the conversion of a man of so many years. How learned and skilled in the liberal arts was he, so well-read and discriminating concerning so many works of the philosophers. And he was the instructor of a great host of noble senators, obtaining a statute in the Roman forum as a monument to his excellent work, something deemed a great honor by worldly men. So too, he was a worshiper of idols and a participant in the sacrilegious rites that were practiced by nearly all of the Roman nobility, rites that had inspired the people with the love of monster gods, barking Anubis and his mongrel crew, who on Neptune, Venus, and Minerva fling their impious arms. Rome, who had once upon a time conquered these gods, now adored them, all of whom Victorinus had defended for so many years with his thundering eloquence. But now he did not blush at being the child of your Christ and an infant newborn from your fountain, nor at submitting his neck to the yoke of humility and bowing his head before the reproach of the cross. O Lord, Lord, who has bowed the heavens and come down, "'touching the mountains and making them send forth smoke,' see Psalm 144.5. "'By what means did you find your way into his breast?' As Simplician said, he used to read the Holy Scriptures, seeking and searching very studiously into all the various Christian writings, so that he said to Simplician, not openly, but privately as a friend, "'Understand that I am already a Christian.' In response, Simplician answered, "'I will not believe it, nor will I number you among the Christians, until I see you in the Church of Christ.'" Then Victorinus lightheartedly replied, do walls thus make one to be a Christian? Often he repeated this claim that he already was a Christian, and Simplician just as often responded with the same words, being met anew with the flippant remark about not needing walls to establish his Christianity. Victorinus did this because he feared to offend his friends, those proud demon-worshippers, supposing that the weight of their hatred would fall down upon him from the height of their Babylonian dignity, like the cedars of Lebanon that had not yet been felled by the Lord. See Psalm 29.5. However, after continued reading and earnest reflection, he gathered a firm intention and feared being denied by Christ before the holy angels, if he himself now feared to confess Christ before men. See Luke 9.26. Thus he judged that he was guilty of a grave sin by being ashamed of the sacraments of your word's humility, while not being ashamed of the sacrilegious rites of those proud demons, whose pride he imitated and whose rites he adopted. Therefore he put off the shame of vanity and felt shame before the truth, suddenly and unexpectedly saying to Simplician, who told me about this himself, Let us go to the church, for I wish to become a Christian. And, unable to contain his joy, he went with Victorinus. Thus, having received initial sacramental initiation as a catechumen, not long after he submitted his name so that he might be reborn through baptism. At this, Rome was filled with wonder and the church with joy. The proud saw and were filled with anger. They gnashed their teeth and faded away. See Psalm 112.10. However, the Lord was the hope of your servant, who paid no attention to vanities and deceptive madness. See Psalm 45. To conclude the story, in Rome, those who are about to approach your grace declare their faith while upon an elevated platform in the sight of all the faithful in a memorized form. When the hour had come for Victorinus to do so, the presbyters, Simplician said, offered to him that he could make his profession more privately as was customary for those who seemed to be unnerved and shy. But he chose instead to profess his salvation there in the presence of the holy multitude. For as he said, it was not salvation that he taught in his rhetoric classes, though he publicly professed that. How much less, then, should he, in pronouncing your word, dread to stand before your flock, he who did not fear the mad multitude of people when he pronounced his own words? Thus, when he went up to make his profession of faith, all who knew him whispered to each other his name in words of congratulation, and who gathered there did not know him. Thus, on all the lips of the rejoicing listeners there was heard a low murmur, "'Victorinus, victorinus!' As quickly as they burst forth in rapturous joy upon seeing him, so too did they quickly hush so that they might hear him. And he pronounced the true faith with great boldness, and all wished to draw him into their very hearts. Yes, through their love, they drew him there, clasping him with the hands of their affection. 3. O oh, our good God, why do we rejoice more at the salvation of a soul who seemed hopeless and immersed in great dangers than we do at the conversion of those whose situation was more hopeful or less filled with danger? For you too, O oh merciful Father, rejoice more over one who repents than over ninety-nine righteous men who have no need of repentance. See Luke fifteen seven. And how great is our delight when we joyfully hear that the sheep that had strayed has been brought back upon the shepherd's shoulders. See Luke 15, 5 and that the coin has been restored to your treasury, while the woman's neighbors rejoice with her at the news. See Luke 15.8. And think of how the joy of the solemn service of your house draws forth tears when we hear the words read telling us that your younger son was dead and is alive again, that he who was lost has been found. See Luke 15.24. For you rejoice in us and in your holy angels, holy through holy charity. For you are ever the same, knowing all things the same way, though they neither abide unchanged or forever. What then takes place in the soul when it is more delighted at finding or recovering the things that it loves than if it had always had them? Indeed, other things bear witness to this as well, for all things are filled with witness that cry out, So it is. When a commander succeeds in his conquest, he shouts in triumph, but he would not have conquered without fighting. And the greater the peril he faced, the greater the joy in his triumph. The storm tosses sailors, threatening with shipwreck, while they all go pale with fear of death. Then the sky and sea calm, and they are filled with great joy, corresponding to the great fear that they had felt. A friend is sick, with a pulse that warns that his condition is serious. All who long for his recovery are sick in mind, as he is sick in body. Then he is restored, though he does not yet walk around with his former strength. Nonetheless, how great is the joy even more than when he could walk around hale and hearty. Yes, men acquire the very pleasures of human life through difficulties, not only those that fall upon us unexpectedly and against our wills, but also ones that we ourselves choose, sometimes even in a spirit of pleasure-seeking. Eating and drinking have no pleasure unless hunger and thirst precede them. Drunkards eat salted meats that cause an unpleasant irritation, which brings pleasure when it is allayed by drinking." And it is also the case that the betrothed bride should not be given to her future husband at once, lest, having not sighed for her during a period of betrothal, he might not hold her in high esteem. This law holds in foul and accursed joy, and it is found in permitted and lawful joy. So too it is found in the purest perfection of friendship, and so too in him who was dead but now is alive, him who was lost but now is found. Everywhere greater joy is ushered in by greater pain." What does this mean, O Lord my God, whereas you are a joy to yourself everlastingly, also endlessly rejoiced in by those beings who now surround you? What is the meaning of this ebbing and flowing of displeasure and reconciliation in this part of things? Is this their allotted measure? Is this all that you have assigned to them? Whereas from the highest heavens to the lowest bounds of the earth, from the beginning of the world to the end of the ages, from the angel to the lowly worm, from the first motion to the last— You set each in its place and bring each into being in due season, every good thing according to its particular kind. Woe is me! How high are you in the loftiest heights, and how deep are you in the greatest depths! You never depart, yet we with difficulty return to you. Okay, so at the beginning of this passage, here at the beginning of Book 8, St. Augustine makes reference to the fact that his big-ticket problems like philosophical and theological have been addressed. So thanks in part to the preaching of Saint Ambrose, his confusion as to the the nature of God, as to the nature of creation, They've basically been resolved, which is a huge help because it's aided him in his conversion kind of beyond Manichaeanism and towards Christianity or towards Catholicism. But he addresses the fact, again, there are still some practical problems. So he's not as much worried now about his advancement in his professional career. He doesn't suffer as much from the kind of vanity, which he'll describe in earlier books, but lust remains. (laughs) Lust remains. Um, So he's been in the grips of this habitual sin now for more than half of his life, it seems, because he first describes them in like kind of adolescence. And at this stage of the game, he's like 31. So Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, in the grips of habitual sin, St. Augustine gives us some really excellent passages of honesty, but honest paralysis. What do you as a reader kind of make of that and take from that?
1: Yeah, there's, I think the the sort of setup of fine with theological philosophical problems those have been resolved in practicals here lust still remaining that that's not an uncommon experience right that yeah you know we we might be taught the things of the faith um sometimes i get this when i'm teaching rca that someone you know who's not yet a catholic will say yeah i believe it but my heart's not there or or i understand but my heart's not there and that that's one thing but then the reality of the existence of habitual sin is is another thing and you know as you as you frame it that you know this is something that we have been reading about in saint augustine's life for a while now we're in book eight and his first mentions of lust and fornication and these sort of things came a long time ago and yeah he's in his early 30s and it's still a problem and that can be the reality of habitual sin can be kind of haunting that like yikes Going on years and years. But there there is a hope in the grace of Christ and in the timing and providence of Christ. And I think part of what St. Augustine is doing and having in sort of manifesting his struggles throughout his life, but in particular now as he's getting closer and closer to his conversion, is that there's a sense of like honesty with self and with God about who he is and what plagues him and often that's that's kind of a first step in a move of conversion but it's also a step that needs to be repeated because you know we have to repeatedly ask for God's mercy as he has had to do throughout you know his life in this kind of way so yeah on the one hand in reading St Augustine still struggling in this way it's kind of like yeah, gosh there's a recognition of how difficult uh, it can be to shake a, a habit but also as his conversion and the conversions of so many others testified to, it's, it's a real possibility to live a life of holiness, even if we're plagued with a habitual kind of long-term sin in this way.
0: Yeah. And so, as we made mention in the introductory bonus episode uh, for this book, book eight, uh, he's going to draw strength from the story of the conversions of others. And we'll kind of hear like two stories, but The second story has another story nested within it. So for the first story, he asks the counsel of Simplician, and Simplician recounts the story of Victorinus, who is a great rhetor, a great orator, you know, one who is well established in society, not unlike Augustine, perhaps even more so, who himself, you know, is going to convert or did convert to Christianity. And he'll talk about this conversation that he would have had in anticipation of his conversion where the one insists you know like you should enter the church and you should do so by a public proclamation and Victorino says do walls make one to be a christian like he's saying you know interiorly um kind of mentally or intellectually i'm very sympathetic with the christian faith i would even count myself a christian but do i need to go through all the hoopla all the rigmarole, really of this public protestation and all of these sacramental things that you guys seem to esteem so much yeah it seems kind of crass you know it seems kind of rude But then he recognizes that he's sinning by being ashamed of the church's simplicity, you know, more so than he is ashamed of, I don't know, I I suppose he's kind of tripped up by his potentially despised status among those with whom he currently holds rank. And so I think this, this brings before our eyes the institutional nature of the church, the sacramental nature of the church, which is to say the embodied nature of the church, Um, So you can't say like, I'm just a a spiritual Christian. You always have to be a both spiritual and bodily Christian because you wed yourselves to the means, we wed ourselves to the means which God appoints for our sanctification. And he's going to apply that sanctification often by by humble things because as human beings, we're inclined to go to the spiritual through the bodily and we need to lay hold of something or otherwise we're going to end up idolaters. And it's probably good for us to be humbled in this way because we originally sinned by pride. Um, so I know that you love to preach about you know, love of the church, specifically of the institutional church as a means whereby we are saved. So, yeah, your thoughts on this theme,
1: yeah, the, despite the difficulties that the institutional church might pose in our lives and the imperfections that it that it has, at the end of the day, it's how Christ, it's how God, Jesus Christ decided that we might come to salvation, that we might come to know him through the simplicity of the sacraments, through the outpouring of his grace through the church, through the hierarchy of the church. And in that, there are often frustrations or questions as to like, well, why do I need to do that? Why is it set this way? And we can give answers, but ultimately, like we can give answers of fittingness and why this makes sense. But at the end of the day, it's it's also a question of trust. Do we, do, you know, do we trust in the means that the Lord has set before us? And for St. Augustine here, he's asking the same questions or, you know, he's having the same conversations of is the public sort of dimension needed to having this conversation about the the reality of the sacraments? Can I just profess on my own to be a Christian? And the answer to all of that is no. And that's not, sometimes that might come off as a sort of controlling Thing, that like the church wants to dictate what you do. But in fact, the church is offering like a simple, humble, accessible, ready path to holiness, to encounter Christ. And not because the church, not because she says so, but because Christ says so. So in all that and coming to recognize and to attune our lives to that, which takes time, it's part of our conversion, we're simply recognizing and attuning our lives to Christ. And sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow, but there's also a great beauty in its simplicity and its stability and regularness of that offer of grace in life. And yeah, you see Augustine here coming to terms or understanding that in a a deeper way.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, like as he comes to terms with the excellence of this conversion, he has to make a determination as to what really constitutes it as excellent, because he doesn't want to say, okay, we're just excited because this guy is really noble and we're trying to like get the most elite members of society to become Christians. And then really, you know, just pumped, corporately pumped when that happens. Because he's like, no, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. insofar so far as God's plans or his, you know, providence exercised throughout salvation history seems to show a preference for the weak, the lowly, the despised, precisely as a way by which, you know, to, to chasten the proud or to, to humble the proud. And so then then he has this cool meditation on, like, what is it about this conversion that so animates the human heart? Because, you know, at the moment of the conversion, because this individual, Victorinus chooses to make a public profession in the church, even though he could have been afforded a private ceremony so as to spare his feelings and maybe some of the public shame which would have been attached to it. But in choosing to make a public profession, you know, the Christians who are present there for it. Are are very encouraged by it, right? They're they're empowered by it, and they're whispering, "It's Victorinus, it's Victorinus." You know, uh, you know, he's to be one of us. He's to be one of us. And then in the process, you know, there's this kind of like kind of edification of the church, which comes about. And so, you know, Saint Augustine turns and says, "Why is it that we're so excited about the recovery of the one sheep, more so than the stability or the constancy of the 99? And I think the nature of the conversion here, the kind of extraordinary quality of the conversion. Even the sensational quality of the conversion isn't meant to make us despise the 99, but to kind of draw our gaze or draw our attention to the ordinary means whereby God draws the human heart to himself, whereby he infuses grace and virtue and, you know, effectively heals and grows a person beyond some of their natural or fallen limitations. So, yeah, your thoughts on on the one, the 99, and the strange
1: providence of God? Yeah, the, the, I think... I think sometimes our minds and our attitudes are plagued by the contemporary sort of individualism. Um, So it's like, well, why this one over, it's not really why this one over the 99, but also often like why this one over me, who's a member of the 99, right? But the, the truth of the matter here is that the addition of the one or the return of the one actually changes the 99. It bolsters the 99. It brings to completion a unity, right? Because the story of the ninety nine is not a story about ninety nine. It's a story about a hundred about a perfection, a fullness. And when that one returns, it contributes to the fullness of the 99. Not saying that I need everybody to convert for, in order for me to be full, but there's something in the mystical body of Christ that that is meant to draw all of us into one. This is Christ's prayer at the Last Supper, you know, the high priestly prayer. So in the return of the 99, the rejoicing of that is not simply in this individual's Conversion, but in the building up of the body of Christ of which we are all members. So we all, in a sense, I don't want to say benefit, but we all grow, benefit, become more unified in our pursuit of Christ with that. So We shouldn't think of it in terms of just an individualistic, here's one on this side, and then here are 99 ones on this side. No, it's it's a unification of the body. This is what Christ died for, that we might be one in him as he and the Father are one. Um, So when we begin to see it in these terms, we can see why it encourages, why it bolsters, why it builds up, and why it's a cause for rejoicing, not just at the one being one, but at us being one.
0: Yeah, that's very beautiful. I hadn't thought about it in precisely those terms, but as you make, you know, the case, I think of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, we're not like jealous that the Blessed Virgin Mary has been accorded such inestimable graces and virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one, because we we revel in her exaltation. and two, we also benefit from it. You know, that we have a mother in the spiritual order who proves herself so generous and gracious with respect to us, and that's part of the unity of the mystical body and are all going to God, you know, together. So boom, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's what we have for you for this episode. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.